Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. All right, we're going to be reading actually just two sentences, three sentences from the book of Luke. And if you want to follow along in your church Bibles, you can find this on page um, 1,601. Or if you're going to look at your own Bible, you're on your own. And uh, you may want to, if you're a note taker, you may want to keep it open after we're done reading so that you can um, see some of the things that uh, that we've talked about. But before we, uh, before we pay attention to God's word, I'd like to ask if you would pray with me again, please. Father, we are about to engage with you through your written and your eternal word. And our, our confidence in you is very firm. But Father, should, should I stray from truth by mistake or by misunderstanding, God, please guard us from any influence that might lead us to a house, to a life that is built on sand. Where your truth intersects with our lives, God, we pray that you will transform us into people who are growing more and more like Christ in every way. And I pray, Father, that you would shape us through your Spirit's presence so that in all ways we act and we live out your truth in love. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I, have a, I, I want to start with a confession. Actually, it, uh, it's two confessions, actually. First confession is um, last Sunday, if you were here, I challenged all of you to join me in praying every day that God's Spirit would fill us and that God's Spirit would fill this place. That was our Pentecost prayer last Sunday. Now, I have no idea if you even planned to do that and join me in praying that way, but if you planned to do it, my guess is that um, a lot of you probably did better than I did. Uh, I think that I remembered to pray that prayer maybe three or four days this past week, and I'm going to give myself the benefit of the doubt and say that I remembered four times. That's just above half. So if I was in elementary school and took a spelling test and only got four out of seven right, I don't think the teacher's going to pick me to be first in line and lead the kids out for recess on that particular day. So I didn't do very well. My second confession is this. I know that a couple of you will remember, and I've talked about this a couple times when we were going through the Growing Up series, a couple of you remembered that one of the things that I've been working on lately is some of my talking habits. And the one that is giving me the most trouble is talking about myself less. Um, I cannot tell you how many times a person will be telling me a story about himself or herself. And rather than responding with questions and engaging that person, um, instead I respond by simply telling a story about myself. And honestly, Honestly, I, I cannot think of one single time, one single time that I have succeeded in this. Um, now, granted, there are times that I'm in the process of telling a story about myself and I will remember my goal and I will stop and I'll shift to 
asking questions and trying to gauge that person. But there has not been one single time that I'm aware of that I did this habitually and went right to questions. So the bottom line is on this one, I'm going to have to give myself a zero. And if I was in elementary school and I got a zero on a spelling test, I don't even think I'm going out for recess on this day. So I'm not doing very well. But here's the good news. Every single morning I get to start over. Every single morning I get to push the reset button and try again. And I am a big, big fan of the reset button. I use it a lot. The reset button has saved my bacon countless times in this life. Now, a year ago, I don't think any of us thought that we were going to have to use the reset button for getting back to normal life. I think a year ago, all of us thought that when the time comes, we will just slide right back into normal. But it turns out that's not what's happening. There has been a lot of damage done. We've inflicted some hurts on each other. For some of us, fear and worry has overstayed its welcome. For some of us, some bad habits have pitched their tents and they stuck around. For some of us, laziness has been justified for too long. For some of us, losses and pain simply need to be acknowledged and grieved. And I think for all of us, it's time to push the reset button. So there's a great story that Jesus told. Um, there's a, a great story about Jesus and his friends where Jesus acknowledged to his closest friends that there are times when a reset is absolutely necessary in life. This account of Jesus where he dealt with the need for a reset, this actually comes on the night that Jesus was arrested and betrayed. I'm not going to read the whole account because it's quite long, but I'm going to read just three sentences from Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, where Jesus talked about the need and the offer of a reset in life. So I'm going to read this and then we'll talk about what we're going to do uh, to reset our lives. Right in the middle of a long conversation, Jesus said this to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail so when you've repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Now I want to talk about just those three very simple sentences. And we're actually going to start, <clears throat> I want to start with Satan. And I want to start with Satan because to be honest with you, I find what Jesus said to be really, really difficult to understand about Satan. I don't know what you believe about Satan. Apparently, if um, statistics are any indication, uh, belief, at, belief in Satan is, is at an all-time low in our country. 
Oddly enough, belief in Satan is at an all-time low at the same time that belief in ghosts and haunted houses is at an all-time high. And honestly, I'm not going to spend any time at all trying to convince you one way or another about Satan, but I can 100% guarantee you of some things that Satan does not do. He does, knock, he does not knock things over in your house in the middle of the night. He does not open doors that you closed and close doors that you open before you went to bed. He does not make glowy, shadowy things that climb stairs or rock chairs or move curtains kind of amazes me when I listen to talk of people talk about things like that and ghosts and haunting. It amazes me that those are the things that people offer as proof of ghosts. Because if that's all that a spirit can do is to make noises or make shadows or knock things over in the middle of the night, then why in the world do we care? But if we're going to start talking about crucifixions, Now you have my attention. Because if somebody can do that to another human being, then I want to know. And I'm interested. And I do not know anyone with a rational mind who would deny that Jesus faced opposition and had enemies. So I don't care what you call it. I don't care if you call it Satan or not. Jesus had very real opposition. He had enemies. In a span of just a few hours, Jesus was betrayed, he was abandoned, he was arrested, he was mocked, he was flogged, he was beaten, he was tortured, he was humiliated. Iron spikes were pounded through his flesh and bones, and he was nailed to a cross and left there to hang until he was dead. And that is not caused by somebody who was a little bit ticked off because they had their coffee knocked off out of their hands, or somebody who lost their cool in a traffic jam. That kind of violence was the result of somebody who thought very long and very hard about evil. And somebody who was hate-filled and hate-driven. And somebody who was deliberate about causing pain. Somebody who was furiously angry. Somebody who was vengeful. Somebody who wanted to inspire terror in human beings. And Jesus knew that's what his enemy was like. And Jesus knew that's who his opposition was. And so, on the night that this was all about to start, the Bible says that Jesus said to all of his followers... And I don't know if you caught that or not. I always miss this in that story. I thought Jesus was talking to just Peter. But according to the eyewitnesses who told Luke about this, Jesus said to all of them, he said to each one of his followers, Satan has demanded to have all of you for himself to sift you like wheat. And all of his followers are going to face a terrifying sifting from an enemy. And I'll be honest with you, I don't understand it. I cannot wrap my brain around what Jesus is saying about Satan and what kind of access Satan has. I don't understand it. 
I don't know if there are parallels to that very ancient story of Job where God's arch enemy pointed at a very godly man and said to God the Father, this man is not who you think he is, and I can prove it to you. I can prove to you that this man is just so much fluff and empty words, and I can prove to you that he belongs to me and not to you. But Satan was wrong about Job and all of heaven was in awe. But I don't understand what's going on here. All I know is for sure that of all the men and women in this room on that night, all of them would face a very violent sifting, but only one, only one ends up siding with the enemy. Satan, somehow or another, demanded to have them all and only one surrenders, only one. They were, however, all sifted violently. All of them had their worlds violently shaken, and all of them had their worlds violently torn apart. All of them would cower in terror behind locked doors. All of them would have relationships that were ruined. Peter would be so humiliated and so ashamed, he would sob out loud, and run away. For all of them, feelings of helplessness and hopelessness just covered every single thought that they had. They would come to believe that the entire investment of, of their lives up until that point had just turned to dust with the death of Jesus. All of them came to believe that they were 100% wrong about God and that they were now failures. And that's what they faced, that kind of sifting where their world got turned upside down. So let's talk for just a couple minutes about our sifting. What does our sifting look like over the last year and a half? A week ago, I drove through a shopping area and I counted the stores. There were more empty stores than open stores. In our churches, according to some emerging statistics, many, many of our churches have had setbacks from which they will not recover. Many of them are starting to try to reopen, but thousands of the churches that are starting to reopen will not make it through this year. Our relationships have been strained we have judged each other by the silliest of standards. We've been captured by fear and worry and some people have not yet recovered. Our habits have been derailed. We have been able so easily to talk ourselves out of the importance of community, of being present, of being here. Around our whole country, there's been a huge migration of people to places in our country where very few people live and where we have to come in contact with human beings less, which means that we have grown comfortable with less and less contact with human beings. And the list could go on and on and on. Now, if you could write a list of all the things that Christianity is, 
all of these things are anti. All of them. However comfortable we have become with them, all of them are anti. They are incompatible with followers of Jesus Christ. We've been sifted. That's what the enemy has done. Now, enough with the enemy. Let's talk about Jesus. I find it tremendously meaningful and encouraging in what Jesus says to Peter. After he says, Satan has demanded to sift you, to Peter, Jesus says, I've prayed for you. There's some really important truths in that statement, and I want to talk about two very briefly. One, the word you in that sentence is singular. When Jesus said, you will all be sifted, it was plural. He was talking about all of them. But when he says to Peter, I prayed for you, the you is singular. That does not mean that Jesus is praying only for Peter and everybody else is on their own. It means that Jesus knows that the sifting impacts each of us differently. And it means that Jesus is going to pray for every one of them individually. So I don't know if you know this, but do you know that Jesus is doing that exact same thing for you and I right now? Do you know that? Right now. Right at this moment, that's what Jesus is doing. In Romans chapter 8, just a fantastic chapter in the Bible, it's the same chapter where Paul says these incredible truths like, if God is for us, who can be against us? And things like, what can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ? In the same chapter where he says that, that same paragraph, Paul explains why those things are true when Paul says, Christ Jesus died and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Right now. Right at this moment, one of the things going on in the kingdom of God is that Jesus is talking to the Father about us. He's talking to the Father about you and the person sitting next to you and me. And I find that tremendously encouraging. The second thing about that statement that Jesus made to Peter is Jesus said this to Peter before the sifting began, before. Jesus was saying to Peter and to all of them, he was saying, guys, I know what's about to happen to you. And when it's all over, it will be important for you to know that I knew. You should know God was saying, Jesus was saying, you should know before the sifting even begins that I'm praying for you. You know, if you look at 
the Gospels and read the life of Jesus, it's an odd thing that very often Jesus seems to have this need to tell people that he knew. Tell people that he knew things about them before it happened. One time, for example, Jesus is um, walking with his disciples, and as they're walking along the road, his disciples, who are tagging along behind him, they start arguing with each other about which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to have most the clout when Jesus sets up his kingdom? And sometimes when I read that, I find that hard to believe. I can't imagine a group of disciples who are arguing about, I'm the greatest, no, you're the greatest, no, I'm the greatest, etc. But if you find that hard to believe, then you've probably never listened to a presidential debate where there's a stage full of wannabes who are trying to outdo each other by using the capital I most often in a sentence. So it is not all that unusual for people to try to finagle their way or argue their way into positions of power. And that's what's going on in this walk. However, a little while later, those disciples who are arguing, they catch up to Jesus. And Jesus casually turns and he asks them, So what were you guys talking about back there? Imagine. Now, it's not that he didn't know. It's that he was letting them know that he knew. Another time, he's talking to a single woman at a well, and he said to her, go get your husband. And she said, well, I don't have one. One, of course, being the key word, since there were a half dozen. And it's not that he didn't know. It's that he was letting her know that he knew. Another time, Jesus knelt beside a man who had spent three decades pursuing a kind of magical healing that was never going to do him any good. And Jesus knelt by him and said, So, do you want to be healed? And it's not that Jesus didn't know. It's that he was letting the man know that he knew. Do you know, sometime in early 2020, it might have been January, Somebody sent me a video of a town in China that I had never heard of that was locked down. The people in this town in China were opening their windows and they were shouting encouragements to each other because some sickness was ravaging the place. And I watched this video and I could not imagine how do you shut down an entire town. Poor them, I thought. I'm glad that will never happen here. I didn't know. I had no idea. But Jesus did. And I find it encouraging and helpful and hopeful that before I knew, Jesus did. Before a single person coughed, Jesus was already praying for us and praying for our sifting and praying that our faith would remain strong. And I find it helpful that before Jesus, before I knew, Jesus knew. 
and that he was praying for my faith and for your faith. Now, here's the next statement that Jesus made to Peter. After he said, I've prayed for you, that your faith would be strong. Jesus said, when you have repented and returned to me again. Now, I think you need to know this, maybe not, I don't know. I I don't know why our Bibles take a single word and make it sound like two. My Bible reads this way, when you've repented and returned to me again. It sounds like two words, but in the Bible, it's only one. It's just one word, and it means when you come back, when you return. It's, It's not the normal word for repent, but it can mean that. In other words, Jesus is, it's like the prodigal son who one day said, you know, home is better than here. And he returned home because he knew his father's house would better than where he was. Jesus knew there would come a time when Peter would come back. He'd return. And that's the gift of the reset button. That Peter gets to come back and so do we. You know, I know that over the last couple of months, maybe, I have mentioned the Ravi Zacharias mess a couple times. I don't know how many of you know anything about Ravi or even know the name. But Ravi Zacharias was the face of a worldwide ministry called RZIM, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. For four decades, Ravi Zacharias spoke to millions of people, helping them to have a a rational and a reasonable understanding of the Christian faith. He wrote more than 30 books. He was a favorite speaker at intellectual settings on college campuses and universities. He spoke at Harvard, Yale, Cambridge, USC. Just a brilliant, brilliant man. Within the last couple of years, some rumors of scandal started to swirl around Ravi, but Ravi always had answers, always denied everything, and anybody who knew Ravi believed what Ravi said. The things that were being said about him were just too ugly to imagine that it was even possible for someone to live such a double life. Ravi died last May, May of 2020. Shortly after he died, accusations started coming out more and more and more. Only this time, people took the accusations seriously. There was an investigation, and it turns out that it's ugly. And Ravi hid some sexual secrets for decades. Now, as you can imagine, this news was just horrible, horribly devastating for his family to hear. Some of the family members still haven't accepted it as truth, and that's okay, I understand. Ravi's oldest daughter is a woman named Sarah Davis. For the last 10 years, Sarah Davis has been the CEO of RZIM Ministries. Since May of last year, she has been quiet and kept her silence. She's had a chance to examine all of the evidence. Just a few days ago, Sarah released a video 
in which she said that she has had to admit that it's true, the evidence. She confessed that the people of RZIM failed the victims of Ravi horribly because they paid no attention to her acu- the, Ravi's accusers for the longest time. It's a 10-minute long speech. It's hard to listen to. But there was one thing she said that I found especially meaningful in her speech. She took the time to plead with other people who are hiding sins, hiding secrets, and she pleaded with them to return, to repent, to come home. This broken-hearted daughter who found out horrible things about her dad after he died, she was forced to say, how I wish my dad had confessed. I wish he could know that if he had confessed, we would have forgiven him. There would have been consequences, of course, but we would love him and we would have forgiven him and so many lives could have been restored. It was moving to me to watch a daughter who has been betrayed by her father make this plea to people. My father, she said, did not repent. But you can. You can return. You can come back. And you can be restored. This is the gift that Jesus gives us, the gift of a reset. And for some of you, it's time to come back. I think this means a couple of things for all of us. It means, number one, if you have secret sins, if your shame is keeping you from God, it's time to come back. Time to repent. Time to come home. And secondly, it means if COVID is still keeping you away, if you're waiting for some magic moment when somebody declares for all of us that the world is now free of an ugly virus, you're waiting in vain. There is no future in which COVID does not exist. It's in our world to stay which means there will never, ever be a better time than now. It's time to come back. It is time to come back. And then the final statement of Jesus. When Jesus said to Peter, and when you come back, strengthen your brothers. When you come back, strengthen your brothers. As we push the reset button and start to come back, all of us, this is going to have to be our agenda. Our agenda will have to be rebuilding and strengthening what has grown weak. Don and I were chatting about this this past week. 
the last year and a half has been really, really hard. And I know it's been really, really hard for many of you, for many of you. And in our chat to Donna, I said something like this. I said, you know, it's going to get really complicated because there's a lot of people that have grown used to church being pretty easy the last 18 months. Not everybody, but a lot of people. Gotten pretty easy to sit down in your living room with your PJs with some coffee and turn on YouTube. Haven't been many demands. And I said to Donnie, you know, honestly, I'm not sure how many people are ready and willing to give that up, and it's going to be complicated. And Donna looked and said, but this is about our kids. Our kids are too important. We have to get back for our kids. That statement has been rattling around in my brain for a couple days, and it reminded me that there are some things in life more important than my comfort. There are some things that deserve effort, which is exactly why Jesus said, when you come back, strengthen each other. It has to be our agenda to strengthen what has grown weak. To do that, we're going to do a bunch of things over the next few weeks and months. Number one, we're going to devote some time to thanking people at Horizon who never quit. Not one single Sunday. Over the last year and a half, there have been people who have been here every week when no one else was, and we owe them a lot. So we're going to give some time to saying thank you to some people. We're going to devote some time, number two, devote some time to thanking people in our communities who never, ever quit serving us. The people at the grocery stores who never stopped stocking, stocking shelves, who never stopped checking us out, who never stopped delivering food and toilet paper to us. Emergency responder, healthcare workers, mechanics, printers, people who kept gas stations open when many, many of us could stay home. There were all kinds of normal, everyday people who made it possible for our lives to go on, and I'm grateful for them. We all should be. So we'll take some time to thank them. We're going to take some time, number three, to devote some time to finding ways that we can say thank you to businesses and support businesses, restaurants, for example, where workers have worked so hard and struggled so much. Number four, we're going to have to devote some time to our relationships because every church, every organization has struggled We've allowed politics to invade our relationships. We've judged each other on the silliest things. Our tempers have been short. So for us to return and strengthen each other, we're going to have to be deliberate about forgiving each other. We are each going to have to make a choice 
to give to other people the same kind of grace that we expect for ourselves. So we will simply have to take time and pay attention to our relationships. Number five, we're going to have to grieve what we've lost because we've lost a lot. And number six, we're going to take time to celebrate simply being together again. In all these ways and more, we will have to strengthen what has grown weak. Let me finish by telling you a true story about a man I know who is doing exactly that right now, this morning, strengthening people around him. Last November, during Thanksgiving month in our church, I preached a message in which I encouraged all of us by talking about how the Bible says that we should thank people who have shaped our lives. I wrote down on this sticky note, I wrote down the name of a person that I knew I needed to thank. His name is Barry Rebert, and I wrote it down and I stuck it on my desk last November. Barry Rebert is roughly my parents' age, so he's really, really old. Um, he, um, Barry had three daughters, all of them younger than me. But none of his daughters was interested in things like hunting and fishing and camping like he was. Barry was a pastor in downtown Allentown when I was a little kid growing up on the corner of Tillman and St. Lucas Street in Allentown. And for whatever reason, Barry decided to adopt me and I became his fishing and hunting and camping companion. I don't know why I got picked, but I did. I did nothing to deserve it. Later on, when I was a pastor at my first church in Adamstown, Pennsylvania, it just so happened that Barry was the pastor at a little church called Moans Hill on top of the hill, just a mile or two from where I was living. So we got to continue our relationship of hunting and fishing regularly. When I got my first deer and didn't know what to do with it, I called Barry and said, what do I do? It's laying here. And he said, bring it on up. He set up some tables in his garage and he spent the afternoon teaching me how to process a deer. Because he lived so close, in addition to being a hunting, fishing, camping partner, Barry became kind of a pastor, mentor to me. And I remember during one particularly difficult time, I remember sitting in a restaurant and I can still hear Barry saying some very difficult truths I needed to hear. One time, Barry called me up to his house there were two handmade flintlock rifles sitting on his kitchen table, and he said, pick one. I want you to have one. Imagine. This is just one more time of many times in my life that I've been treated better than I deserve, and I don't know why that is, but it is. I'm saddened that I let that relationship drift away. For 20 years, I hadn't seen or talked to Barry, but in November, I realized I owed Barry a thank you. I wrote his name on a sticky note, put it on my desk, and I wrote down, find Barry. I found him. I wrote his address and a phone number on a sticky note, and since November, 
I promptly did nothing. Tuesday of this week, I got an email from my denomination, and the email said that Barry has cancer and has decided to stop treatment. I called and started emailing that very day on Tuesday. It took a day, but his wife, Flo, sent me an email the next day. She said, Barry has just days to live, if that. And I said, can I come see him? Flo responded and said, well, you can, but he's no longer responsive. His pain medication has him sleeping all the time. Nevertheless, Thursday morning, I drove to Mount Joy to the hospice center where Barry is spending his last few days. I decided to take some pictures of some trips to Wyoming and some elk hunts because I knew that Barry would appreciate that. And having gone through this kind of thing with people before, I knew, well, I know that he won't be responsive, but I can at least sit on the edge of his bed and talk to him and show him pictures and tell him thank you and tell him I love him and maybe he'll hear. When I got to the hospice center on Thursday morning, I decided that before I walked in, I was going to check my email one more time just to be sure that Flo has not sent me an email saying Barry's now in heaven. While I was checking my email, the car pulled up beside me, and it was Flo. I haven't seen her in 20 years. We got out together. She looked, and she said, you will not believe this, buddy. But this morning, Barry was sitting up on the edge of his bed, talking and telling jokes. So she said, we're going to walk into his room together. But she said, let me surprise Barry. So we walked in and Flo said, Barry, I brought you a surprise. Look who I found in the parking lot. Buddy is here. Buddy. I can always tell when somebody got to know me when I'm still Buddy. Barry's eyes got very wild, very wide. He smiled and put his arms out and said, Buddy. And I got to sit on the edge of his bed for an hour and a half and talk and tell hunting stories. And I told him that I loved him and gave him a long overdue thank you. And then I asked, So what happened, Barry? What did you get? And I heard this story, and Flo told me that it was two Novembers ago when they learned that Barry had cancer that would kill him. And Flo said, as you can imagine, that Thanksgiving when we sat down to tell the girls and the grandkids that it was a very, very hard Thanksgiving for us. But Flo said... Barry then told us all a verse that he believes. And Flo looked at Barry and said, Barry, tell Buddy the verse. Barry looked at me and said, it's Psalm 31, verses 14 and 15. But I am trusting you, O Lord, saying, you are my God. My times are in your hands. And Flo said, sitting around that Thanksgiving table, when he said that, we knew that he meant it. My times are in your hands. And we knew that we were okay if Barry was okay. And Flo said this, we have all found strength in Barry's strength. 
and I could see it in flow. Strength. It was there in their faces. It was in the grip of their hands when we grabbed hands with each other and when we prayed before I left. Strength. We gave it to each other, this gift from Jesus, and we are meant to give it to each other. Strength. So it is time. It is time to return. It is time to return. And when you do, strengthen your brothers. It's time. God, we depend entirely on you for the strength that we have, but you give it, and you give it to us graciously. You offer us every single morning this gift of a reset. And God, I pray that as we begin to return, that you will help us to strengthen what has grown weak. Help us to strengthen one another, to lift each other up, and to begin again doing what is so important for our world and your kingdom. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website at horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.